if there is to be a challenge in your discipleship life, your life of growing in Christ, I can almost guarantee that it's going to be with regard to making every day a hallelujah to Jesus Christ. It is in fact in the area of worship I think that we are attacked most. In fact, um, that's the area and how we interpret it and understand it that causes us the greatest challenge of our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we um, thank you for the time now that we've had in your presence, lifting up praises and singing and time of prayer, the time to reflect on your goodness to us and to express to you how much we love you and to offer to you from our hearts sacrifices of praise, to, to obey as a congregation together the uh, command to, to be baptized. And so, Father, now you've brought us to this point of time where we now are to, um, to feed on the truth, as Pastor Steve has already prayed, that we might have our souls nourished and strengthened for the journey. So our Father, I ask that you would open up our understanding. I I ask, Father, that you would clarify our uh, misunderstandings, our confusion about the things of worship. Understanding how vital and how central worship is to the life of the disciple of Christ. I pray, Father, that there might be nothing left uh, untouched in terms of, of, uh, of the accuracy and the truth that's proclaimed, but that we might know with clarity and with understanding what it is you long for from our hearts. And Father, we know that the enemy of our soul is everything possible to interfere and cause mischief in the area of worship. And Lord, I pray that um, you would suspend his activities during this time whereby you want to speak into our hearts that we might not miss anything. I pray that we might not be distracted. I pray that our thoughts might not trail away. But I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit of God would laser our thinking On the food of God's word, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I think sometimes we think that the disagreements and struggle in worship is a new phenomenon, is a modern issue. In fact, we've coined phrases in church leadership circles about worship battles. We call them worship wars, you know. We've kind of thought that that was a recent phenomenon, but in fact, the battle for worship is is in fact the original subject matter of the original battle. The fallen universe is the fallout of a worship war. When the evil one himself determined that he would take on God and battle him for worship. And it's been going on ever since. There has been this war that is waging. So worship causing controversy is not new. 
In fact, it was rampant in the time when Jesus himself walked upon this earth. People fighting over how and what. But I want to tell you this morning that there's no more important urgency than learning how to worship the living Christ accurately. And I would define that as simply this. Treating God as God. I mean, I, th- I think when you try to simplify an understanding of worship and what it really is, I mean, we can give long theological uh, explanations with all kinds of great doctrinal and the- theological words, but I honestly believe in my heart, if you can think through this, that worship, true worship, real worship, is simply treating God as God, you'll be well on your way to understanding how you ought to live. And, and I, I would encourage each of us to, to understand that, that we can simplify the purpose of our own existence by narrowing it down to that simple phrase. You are here on this earth for a simple purpose with unbelievable ramifications. And that is to treat God as God. God is not here to line up to our expectations. God does not exist to to line up to your personal tastes or preferences. We, in fact, are here to line up to the Lord's expectations and His desires and His will. And so, um, for the next few weeks, as we lead up to the Holy Weekend of Good Friday and Easter. I want to talk to you about worshiping Jesus' way. And I want to pull it from Matthew chapter 26. If you'd open up your Bibles there, please. There's an interesting description at the very front end of this chapter. It says, When Jesus had finished saying all these things... Matthew is referencing all of the things that he's recorded up to Matthew chapter 26. When Jesus had finished saying all of these things, in other words, he had come to a place in his earthly ministry where he had said, for the most part, everything that he wanted to say. It says here in the text that he said to his disciples, or literally, he turned to his disciples. When his teachings were complete, he turned his his attention toward what I think here is the final critical pattern of discipleship. Keep in mind, this is the last days and hours before the passion of Christ at Calvary. And he gives a pattern of discipleship formation under what title I would give it and others have as worship. In fact, this, I would say, is how Jesus forms disciples. If you read Matthew 26, you will see that there there is within this text three major sections. And and it has to do with under the topic or title of worship. And we'll carry over for the next three weeks that will lead us in these topics. And it seems to me that, that through word and through supper... And through prayers, 
or word communion prayers, disciples are formed. Word can be sung, word can be recited, the word of God can be proclaimed. The communion we know, the Lord's table, we're going to look at that again. And then prayer. It's the central reality of the church's worship format. And it is laid out for us here as of, of vital significance and vital importance. Of, of, of vital importance to the Lord that he laid this out for us as the last things before he went to Calvary. And it seems to me as you look at this text that, that Jesus himself has, has designed the first New Testament order of worship service. Um, we're not going to look at, in depth to this, but, but it's rather curious. And, and as one interpreter sort of drew my attention, the uh, first couple of verses are, are like the prelude to this service. You've got um, Jesus, uh, people coming into this setting with the right attitude, and you've got others with the wrong attitude. Then you've got Christ's call to worship, which we're going to look at today, from verses 6 down through 13. And then there's an offering a collection by Judas, the wrong kind of offering, but there's an offering. And then there's the Lord's table. And then there's the disciples who, who get all brave and all kinds of bravado after they leave the service. Oh, yeah, we're going to serve you with our whole life. And, and we're never going to be disloyal to you, Lord. We're going to do what you say. Yes, we are. And, of course, it's not too long till they betray him. And that's like a typical service. I was, yes, pastor, we're going to do everything that you told us. This, and we're going we're gonna to go out and light, the, light Oshawa on fire for the Lord. And uh, all this. And then, and then Jesus prays and they can't even pray with him. They can't even pray with him. And so you have this kind of neat service order, which is not dissimilar to what we do when we gather together, really. And it's all about how to treat God as God. That's what this is all about. In fact, one of the, um, one of the th- this, this leads us to understand that when we gather together the, as the assembly of God, the mission and ministry batteries are recharged under this format. Um, these forms fire up the spiritual juices for heartened mission to the world. That's what, this is, that's what this is about. In fact, Jesus, within the body of this text, down in verse 13, says, I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, he's already made a claim here of world mission right from this text. And so what you have here is... is Worship formalized in this text, which sets up for us worship regularized, which is our day-to-day worship of the Lord, which in turn sets up the worship formalized all over again. In in fact, if, if someone ever wants or asks you to draw the pattern of your life, this should be it. This should be the simple drawing of your life. I live to gather together with God's people in worship, and I leave that to live my day-to-day life worshiping Jesus Christ until the next time I gather together with God's people and worship Jesus in a formalized way. And that's the pattern of our lives that you get from from Hebrews 10, 25, 
do, do not forsake the gathering, uh, the, the assembling of yourselves together. In Romans chapter 12, 1, we present our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our reasonable act of worship. And in John 4, 23, 24, it talks about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And so you can take those verses and say, that's how a person's life is. In, in fact, everything you do is about worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you eat or whether you drink. Or, or, or whatsoever you do, you do all to the glory of God. If there's anything you can't do to the glory of God, you should not do it. So that your life is a, is a complete pattern of worship. I worship in the every day of my life. I worship when I come together with God's people. And that's the cycle of my life. That's a healthy soul right there. And that's what Jesus lays out for us. That's what the word of God lays out for us. That's, that's the... The, the simple um, yet profound way that God's people are to live. A life of worship. One writer talks about how the church formalized fashions, the, the ideal gathering and sending uh, format to, to gather people and send them out to worship. And, and really, as I was reading it, I was thinking, you know, I, God is is forming in us as a church body, as a family of God, this kind of hybrid gathering that, that really reflects the, the, the broadness and the scope of, of what it means to really worship God in, in spirit and in truth. He's, he's gathered us together from all kinds of different backgrounds and different upbringings and different worship experiences. And he's, he's making this really interesting hybrid of people that offer up to God the fullness of what he's looking for, I believe. And let me just describe, let me just share with you the description of that. It, it comes in four parts. We are to have the passion of evangelical church preaching, whereby the sign of that is the central pulpit. And then we are to have the compassion of the liturgical churches, which is reflected by the central table. Of the Lord. There it is. We are to have the music and the prayers of the charismatic churches, which is symbolized by the guitars. I heard a little amen. There they are. And we are to have the social justice of the liberal churches, reflected by the soup kitchen. I like to think our partnership with the refuge and ministries like that is, is what God has brought, how God has brought that facet of worship to us. And as I looked at this, I thought, this is exactly what the Lord is building here in this great family that he's got called Calvary Baptist Church. And so we have this amazing pattern of worship. And, and then the, so the Lord lays this out for us in this text. So let me, let me read this with you. Matthew chapter 26. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. 
And when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what, what are you willing to give me if I hand them over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of God. Jesus chooses to open this text by using the, the identifying uh, phrase, the son of man, his favorite way of identifying himself, which we learned came from Daniel. And so we have um, Jesus referring to himself here, and he's about to bring a fullness to the meaning of Passover. Jesus, it says here, is, he says, I'm, is, Jesus says, um, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified, and it was at the time of Passover. Now, uh, for those of you who are not remembering about Passover, Passover was... Um, was uh, brought to, to, into being at the time of the, the saving of God's people out of Egypt, at the time of the Exodus. And, and the, uh, the um, instruction from the Lord was to, to uh, sacrifice a lamb and to take the blood in, in the homes of the people of God and to put the, the blood over the doorposts, over the door frames of the houses. So that when the angel of death came to, to uh, meet out judgment on the Egyptians... When the angel of death saw the blood, he would pass over that home. And Jesus is about to explain that the full meaning, the fullness of the Passover was all about the Lamb of God. And that when the the angel of eternal death would come and, and come to a person, he would see the blood of Jesus Christ over the heart of that individual and would pass over that person. It's an amazing reality of salvation that is laid out for us. It explains to us how people are saved by Jesus through the eternal, uh, from the eternal consequences of their sin. That Jesus' blood alone can atone for your sin and covers up your sin. When I see the blood, I will pass over. So Jesus gives this. And, and, um, but interestingly, he uses the words that 12 times within the next two chapters, Matthew 26 and 27, that phrase, handed over, will appear. And it's in the pre- uh, present passive tense, or literally it's mean that Jesus is presently handing himself over to be crucified. All the plotting that's going on, all the scheming that's going on that we see here, all the, all the wickedness of men who think they're plotting against the living God, you have the sovereign Christ declaring right there on the spot, I'm the one handing myself over at Passover for the sins of the world. Now, Jesus, by the way, is, is um, steeping his comments here in incredible theological freight. He's actually using the language of Isaiah 53. 
He's not hiding his intentions here to those who understood the scriptures. What doesn't appear in your English translations, but are verses that are very familiar to you, but would appear if you were reading the Greek translation of the Hebrew text of Isaiah, is precisely what Jesus is referring to here. You know the text in Isaiah 53, verse 6, where it says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord, in our translations, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, the real translation of that in the Greek is, And the Lord has handed over to him the iniquity of us all. In verse 12 of that same chapter, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. Literally in the Greek is, because he was handed over unto death. Later on in that same verse, and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession. That word intercession should be and was handed over for the transgressors. Jesus is saying, I'm it. I'm the suffering servant. I'm the one referred to here. And it is my Father who is handing. I am handing myself over. Now, bracketed in between this description of the wickedness and the plots of the chief priests, the most religious... And the uh, most ministry active, Judas, is a woman who comes into a very avoided place, the home of a leper, and pours worship lavishly all over Jesus. And this is the example the Holy Spirit has chosen to be the model of Christ's call to worship. It's quite significant for us. In fact, this is what the Holy Spirit has chosen to answer the question that Pilate is going to ask in the next chapter, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And quite honestly, if in expanding upon our understanding of what real worship is, it really is an everyday, day-to-day decision Answering that question in every thought in your mind, in every intention that you're going to consider, in every activity that you engage in, in every gathering that we come together on, we should be asking the question, what should we do with Jesus who is called the Christ? That should form the decision-making process of our lives. And there are four possible responses to that question that are outlined here in this story. The first is first possibility with what you shall do, what you might do with Jesus who is called the Christ is you might consider that Jesus is a threat to your preferred position in which case you will be a worshipper of personal advance if you notice that is represented by represented by the high priests and the elders and the chief priests You have here the most religious, the clergy and the lead laity of the religious system who have come together and it says here gathered together in a palace which is quite contrasting to the fact that where worship is going on is in the home of a leper. While they plot against Jesus Christ in this palace. Now something you need to know about the the chief priest here, Caiaphas, 
He served as the chief priest for 18 years, from 18 A.D. to 36 A.D. And that was during the Roman occupation time. Now, you need to know that the the Romans uh, did everything possible to make sure that that, uh, they controlled everything. And so they changed the system whereby the chief priest would be uh, granted his role for a, a long duration or a duration of time. And they determined that the chief priest would be reappointed every single year. And so Caiaphas found a way to be reappointed by the Roman authorities 18 times. Now, any of you who have ever done any elections, any of you who have ever run for anything, you know that if you have to be elected every single year, you have to do a lot of kissing up to get that job. So there's no doubt that Caiaphas was in the hands of the Romans. He wasn't serving the purposes of living God. And so you have this, significant, this situation whereby by this, uh, this, these individuals are, are viewing Jesus as interfering with their preferred position. And so we see words like plotting and, and sly and kill. These are not worship words. At least I'm thinking they aren't. I'm not thinking that these are words that are on your mind and heart this morning. Plotting and, and sly and kill. At least I hope you didn't come to church with those thoughts on your mind. And I hope you don't leave with those thoughts on your mind. That's not the idea of, of worship. That's not the atmosphere of worship. In fact, it's, it's effectively the opposite of worship. The Lord here is already sovereignly ruled. They say that we're going to sneak around here and we're going to make sure that it doesn't happen during the feast so there won't be a riot. They think they're in control of this thing. Jesus has already said, I'm going to hand myself over. And it'll be during Passover. Thank you very much. Well, there's a second way that you may answer the question, what would we do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And this is represented, sadly, by the disciples. They seem to think that Jesus is the perfect excuse for controversy and bickering over expectations and style. This is when we worship practicality or personal taste. Somehow, and I'm not sure whether it was slipped into your pablum when you were a little baby or something, but somehow you got it in your mind that worship, real worship, the kind that that the Lord seeks is what I think it should be, or what you think it should be, or how you think it should be done, or according to your preferred taste or type or style. I'm not sure where that came from, and and I wish that... um, as we look carefully at this, I, I wish we'd see the, the, the audacity of, of, of having that kind of worship concept. From the, from the disciples here, they, they were saying the worship should, have been, should not have been poured. It should have been sold. It, 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 should, have been given to, it should not have been given to Jesus. It should have been repackaged and, and, and taken in a different form and, and given to a different person in a different place with a different style. Too much, for so little, too poorly thought through. This is so wrong. Have none of us ever read what the Lord is really looking for in worship? We, we for some reason, have it in our, our minds, in our ideas, that, that the living God is looking for stuff. Let me read to you again, even though you've heard it many, many times, but 
let me read it to you again. This is what Jesus said. The time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. The the living God is spirit. He's not needing stuff. He's not waiting just so he can hear the perfect stuff. I wish some of you would please go on a Sunday somewhere else. Not, not, Not here in North America. I wish you would get on a plane somewhere, and I wish you would fly to anywhere but North America, and I wish you would go to church there, and I wish you would see how different it is and how much the Lord is loved and worshipped and served in a way that's completely, absolutely different from here. Because the Lord is not looking for our stuff or our style or our tastes or our preferences. He's looking for a kind of worship I I don't do this normally but could you say it back to me so I know you've heard it what is the Lord looking for a kind of worshiper (sighs) Pastor Steve my ministry is complete a kind of worshiper A kind of worshiper who worships in spirit and in truth. And you can do that in a myriad of ways. Well, there's a third possibility here. It's a sad commentary when an insider is a betrayer of the Lord. John, in his gospel, outs the culprit here. The ringleader of this controversy and bickering was Judas Iscariot. And we learn here from this that this kind of person answers the question, what shall I do with Jesus this way? They view Jesus as a huge disappointment and try to cut their losses. They worship a man-made God. Let Let me explain something to you that I find in the scriptures and I find in practical real life. Worship critics are usually disappointed with God in some way. There's some sort of unresolved thing in their lives that somehow they thought God should have dealt with differently. And it's not worship. It's not style. It's not preference. It's disappointment with God. That's somehow unresolved. You see, Judas, when he, um, when he saw the job description, the job posting for disciple and signed up, he was assuming that there was going to be a big job promotion coming along. That's the premise with which he was working. 
He agreed to be um, treasurer of this mini happy band because his designs on God, on Jesus, was that he was actually come to be liberator of the, of, of the, of the people of Israel and that he was going to take over and, and, and take charge of the universe. And you know what? He was just early on his thinking. He wasn't wrong about his thinking. He was early. And all he could see is that someday, very soon, I'm not just going to be the treasurer of this little band of merry men, but I'm going to be the minister of finance of the world. And Jesus stands in front of them that day and says, guys, it's Passover time. A few days I'm handing myself over to be crucified. That's not what Judas signed up for. And so he decides to take his severance pay and get out. What was his golden handshake? Was it worth it? 30 pieces of silver. You know, we're thinking to ourselves, maybe that was a lot of money. Maybe, maybe Judas set himself up. In the Old Testament, 30 pieces of silver was the fine that was levied on someone if their ox killed a slave. Think about it. Judas took the fine for an animal accidentally killing a slave. And by the time this happened, inflation made it about one-tenth of that value. The story doesn't end there. In fact, the story really fires up with the right way of worship. The woman. In this case, you answer the question, what should I do with Jesus who is called the Christ this way? Jesus is priceless. It's the worship of a Savior God. This was not an action from the mind. It says in the text that, uh, it says in in, in other places, in other gospel, that, that this perfume was worth 300 denarii, or literally... One year's wages. As the offering plate went by, this lady wrote a check for her whole year's wages. You don't do that from your head. You do that from your heart. Right? And I, don't, I, don't, I, haven't, I don't think I've ever seen anybody put their year's wages on an offering plate. But that's what this is all about. This is, a, this is a description of what worship is. Worship is extravagant. Worship is lavish. Worship comes from your heart. The kind of worshiper. What, do we think that Jesus needed the 300 denarii? I mean, this is the Lord of creation. Jesus made the heavens and the earth. This is the Lord who made all the gold in all the earth. It's the same Jesus who made every diamond there ever was or ever will be. This is the same Jesus who put all of the oil that there is in the world under the soil. Does he need a year's wages from a poor person in a backwater town in Galilee? I think not. Sorry, this is Bethany. I think not. This is what worship is. So let me just conclude with a couple of observations. What does worship tell people Jesus is worth to you? Or maybe more importantly, 
What does your worship tell people that Jesus is worth to him? I um, want you to know that worship is action taken from your heart that serves to describe how much God is worth to you. What would you be willing to pay if you could to have your sins forgiven and eternal life? Isn't it priceless? Jesus describes her act of worship in the Gospel of Mark this way. In Mark 14, 8, she did what she could. That describes worship. Do you do what you can? Do you do what God puts on your heart to do? That's worship. She had heard Jesus' teachings. Love the Lord with all you are and all you have. And she took it seriously. She treated Jesus as Lord of her life. Now, if you do that, here's what you can expect. The Lord will protect that kind of worship. Any of you need God to run some interference for you? I sure, I sure need it myself. In the Mark text, Jesus looks at these people who are bickering and and. And, and attacking her and says, leave her alone. Has, has nobody in your life ever, ever come to you and said, what, you're going to church again this weekend? What a waste. You waste your weekends going to church. What, what are you talking about? You, you take and you give money to the, to, the, to the work of the church? Why would you do that? That's such a waste. Why don't you go buy some nice things? Have, have people never chirped this in your ears? Maybe your own family members have said this to you. People at work have said this to you. Do you realize that, that, that when they do, the Lord God literally says to them, leave them alone. Stop bothering them. As one writer points out, the question of the disciples was, why this waste? And Jesus' response question not here, but reading between the lines is why this hurt. There are other questions. Why this irresponsible use of money? And Jesus answers back to them by a question. Why this irresponsible use of a person? Why are you bothering her? Beware of worship thieves. They count the costs as if they are down to their very last coins. Those who audit the worship of others are usually criticizing the price of praise. There's a jealousy to worthy worship, you know. It goes away back to the very beginning with Cain and Abel. You remember? Cain was jealous of his brother because his worship was accepted by God. And so he hated his brother. But not only is there a jealousy to worthy worship, there's a greed that people have when they see others being responded to by the Lord there's this sense of greed it, it, Cain had it Judas has it we it creeps up in our lives if we're not careful and so we create this reasonable facsimile that we think will be pleasing to God but but we try to benefit ourselves as well now that's what Cain did it, it says in the text he gave some of his stuff to the Lord while Abel gave the best stuff 
Judas decides he's going to cut himself in for some commission. The only reason he was interested in worship, in, in, in the kind of format of worship, is so that he could get his hands on the money, and in the way to take the money to the poor, he'd take out his own commission. And some of us treat worship the same way. We want it to be our taste, our style, our preference, so that we can get something out of it for ourselves. Wait a minute, worship was never for us. It's for the Lord. And he graciously and regularly gives us something back to bless our hearts. But that's not the intention. It's not the motive. So the Lord, the Lord protects this kind of worship, but, but secondly, the Lord promotes this kind of worship. I don't know about you, but when it comes to worship, this is what I want to hear the Lord say. He says of her, she's done a beautiful thing to me. That's, all, that's what I want to hear. You, you know what a choir wants to hear when they get up here? Sunday first service, Sunday second service. They come here and they, they serve you and they serve the Lord and they, they sing their hearts out. All they want to hear is, is the Lord say that's, that, that they did a beautiful thing to him. Whether it be our, our, our instrumentalists or our soloists or our ushers or our Sunday school teachers or our greeters or, or whatever role you serve here, what you really want to hear from the Lord is, they did a beautiful thing to me. That's what worship is. The Lord not only protects that kind of worship, but he promotes that kind of worship. It says in the text, what you've said will be, what you've done to me will be shared down through the ages says in the word of God that, that whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father. That to me is what worship really is. When those people are criticizing you and saying, you're going to church again? What are you, stupid? You're giving money to the, to the Lord's work? Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Why don't you spend your, your money on other things? You know what? Every time you do that, you are acknowledging Jesus in front of men and the Father. And Jesus acknowledges you to the Father. That's what real worship is. And finally... Not only does he protect and promote it, but he directs this kind of worship. We're told it's Mary, the sister of Lazarus. She thought she was just doing a thing to thank Jesus for raising her brother from the dead. And so she takes and she pours this perfume over, and that's all I think she was really thinking of. But Jesus said, do you understand what she's just done? She just anointed me for my burial. And you know what that was to Jesus? A powerful, strengthening, and encouraging word from his Father in heaven. He had just declared to his disciples he was going to the cross. And now the Father, through the work of the Holy Spirit, prompting this woman to worship Jesus, has confirmed and affirmed the Father's pleasure with the Son. And that's what worship is. It's more than we know. It's more than we, we understand. When we offer worship to the Lord and serve one another, we are doing things that God multiplies and, and, and he manufactures blessing and things that we would never know, whether you sing or whether you teach or whether you serve or whether you help someone to their seat or whether you just say a friendly thing to someone, you'll not, not necessarily know how much God has blessed their heart because he expands The over, overly practical, utilitarian are always in danger of mistaking their own voice for that of the Holy Spirit. Self-centeredness is always on the outside of real worship. 
Make no mistake about it, God uses acts of worship to accomplish unexpected blessings. And often they become a lavish message of God's love to the recipient. Beyond anything of our own awareness. They wanted to make Jesus feel bad, you know. Said this money should have gone to the poor. How thoughtless you are, Jesus. Now anybody who ever followed the ministry of Jesus to this point that they got to and got some sort of message that Jesus didn't care about the poor wasn't paying attention. That was his whole ministry. He was always caring for the poor. The point he's making here is, listen, this is a ministry moment. This is a worship moment, a worship moment of God Almighty himself. The poor you will always have. In fact, guys, I don't see any of you getting your wallets out right now to take care of the poor. They were willing to take this money from someone else and transport it to the poor and, oh, look at us. How aren't we pious? Aren't we wonderful? Aren't we so Christian? It wasn't even their money. Get your own wallets out, boys. You're always going to have the poor around. You go, you go take care of them right now. Jesus was kind of a no-nonsense thing. Often we are so busy thinking of the feelings and hurts and needs of those far off that we neglect to have a heart for the one right there in front of us. It's not an either-or. It's both end. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Help But in the movie, The Help, something caught my attention. You've got a whole bunch of self-righteous, southern female. Answer that phone. You got a whole group of, what are kids doing with phones in church anyway? Huh? What's going on here? All right. Okay, all right. It's just you guys looked all guilty. Because you all have phones in church anyway. Hold them up. Come on. Get them out. Ah. So in the movie The Help, you've got, you've got all, and we're going to close her down right now. We've got, in the movie The Help, you've got all these southern self-righteous female Pharisees congratulating themselves because they've raised all kinds of money for African children over there. And all the while, they're treating their African maids like garbage. Sometimes we're, we're so ready to be pious for something over there that we forget to look at what God has put right in front of us here and fail to worship. In the call to worship, Christ's death was the point. It's always Christ. He's always the point. Let's sing. Our Father and our God, as we close our service this morning, we thank you that you have just begun to do a work in our hearts and our lives. Lord, please make us the kind of worshipers, the kind of worshipers, Lord, that you long for. We'd give ourselves fully to you from our hearts. Not gift ourselves, but give to you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's make sure we understand that 
Worship is um, treating God as God. Now, I'm not sure what uh, your situation is, but if you're disappointed with God, then get that right so you can worship Him. Worship is not the, to be the cause of bickering and controversy. It's to be an offering to God from a kind of worshiper. Worship is not to benefit us. It's an offering to God that he graciously often blesses us with. Worship is to be a lavish heart outpouring of extravagant love to Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Worship counteracts all that is wrong with our universe and puts it right. God alone is to be praised and worshipped and glorified. It's treating God as God. Our Father, this morning I pray that you would lift our hearts into the place of worship, that our lives now as we go into the regularized part of worship would be a day-to-day, moment-by-moment choice to treat you as Lord of our life. Pray this in Jesus' name.